Hello everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 193 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this episode, I'm very happy to be speaking with Jason Sorens, who is a political scientist who devised and founded the Free State Project. Now, many of you in this audience may already be familiar with the Free State Project. I've spoken at a couple of Free State Project-related events, actually, since founding the Dangerous History Podcast. I spoke at Porkfest, I believe, back in 2016, and then in 2018, I spoke at the Free Coast Festival in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So if you've heard those episodes, because I made podcast episodes out of my presentations at those two events, then you've probably already heard of the Free State Project, aside from which you know, if you're in the general kind of libertarian-ish milieu, you've probably heard of it, but, you know, maybe you haven't, or maybe you've heard of it, but you don't really know what it is. So I'm actually speaking to the guy who dreamed it up, who devised it and founded it all the way back in 2001, and they've made incredible progress and many cool things have happened, you know, that have sprung out of the Free State Project since then. So very cool. If you're not familiar with the Free State Project, the overall idea is that wouldn't it be great if you could concentrate the libertarian-minded, freedom-loving individuals who are scattered all across the United States and all the many, many states and cities and areas, what if you could take a bunch of them and concentrate them in one location, especially if you could do it in a state that had a relatively low population to begin with so that the numbers of these people, you know, moving together would really have an impact. And especially if you could do it in a state that already was pretty libertarian-ish leaning in a lot of ways. And so ultimately, they decided upon New Hampshire, and thousands of people have already moved to New Hampshire as part of the Free State Project, and there were people who were already residents of New Hampshire, who are, you know, sympathetic with the project as well. And then there are thousands and thousands more who have taken the pledge to move there. So it's a really neat thing. New Hampshire is a really cool state. I've enjoyed all my visits there, even though they've always been pretty brief. But it's the sort of place I would love to spend more time in. And personally, I can't move to New Hampshire anytime in the foreseeable future. But I have to tell you, if, you know, I was a younger single guy without as much family things and so on tying me down, and I didn't have work and family things tying me to Florida for the foreseeable future, I would definitely be tempted to become a free stater and move up to New Hampshire. I would be very, very tempted. It would be on my short list of places to go, you know, places to live in other than Florida for sure. Just a few quick announcements before I introduce Jason Sorens. I am also currently working on a number of other Dangerous History podcast episodes, both regular and bonus. And as well, I'm getting pretty close to recording, as of this recording, the next Rise of the American Empire lecture in my first Dangerous History Lyceum course. Now, this is going to be Technically, the second lecture, but I called the first lecture Lecture Zero because it was sort of the course introduction. So anyway, it's the second lecture, but it's Lecture One, and it's primarily focused around how the United States, all the way back in the early 1780s, as it was getting its independence at the end of the Revolutionary War, was already embarking upon the path of imperialism by trying to grab up the region 
known as Trans-Appalachia, the region between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River, where the Americans had virtually no boots on the ground at the time, and yet they're going to make a play for it, and they're even going to make a play for a while for Canada, too, of all things. Plot spoiler, they won't be successful with Canada, but they will be successful with Trans-Appalachia. But very few people know the dirty, sordid details of how this came about. So if you're interested in that and much more to come, please consider signing up to support the Dangerous History Podcast at Patreon or Subscribestar. And of course, if you want to be able to access the Dangerous History Lyceum lecture courses, you'll need to sign up at the level of $15 per month or more. So anyway, getting to today's episode, my guest, of course, is Jason Sorens. Jason got a PhD in political science from Yale University and has taught at a number of different institutions, including Dartmouth College. He is currently working at St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire. His main research interests have included federalism and secessionism. He is, of course, the founder of the Free State Project, which he got off the ground with an essay published in 2001, and he is also the founder and president of a group called Ethics and Economics Education of New England, and is a project designed to boost ethical and economic literacy in the New England region. Of course, in the show notes, as always, I'll link to a number of things, including the Free State Project, so please, I urge you to check it out if you're not already part of it, and I know that many of you who listen to the Dangerous History Podcast are. But if you're not part of the FSP, you're not familiar with it, please go check it out. It is a very cool thing. And, you know, people who are involved with it do different things with it. Some people are interested in working the political system to try and reform it to make it more pro-liberty within New Hampshire. And they've had some success with freeing up various aspects of New Hampshire's laws and political system. But even if you're someone like me who really isn't into that stuff, there's still something to be said for moving there just from the perspective of community, of having real local communities of great people who share a lot of your values and don't think you're crazy for thinking that human beings should be free. Unfortunately, in our conversation, we did have some connection issues, some dropped calls and that sort of thing. So I'm going to do my best in editing to smooth those over, but just be aware that that did happen a few times. And so anytime it seems like, you know, the conversation weirdly skips or anything like that, again, I'll do my best to smooth it over. But if I can't catch all of it, these are the sorts of things that happen when you're speaking over the interwebs, over whatever it is, a thousand miles away. And also Jason mentioned that he was in a snowstorm at the time we were speaking. So there you go. So anyway, link in the show notes, check it out. And now, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Jason Sorens. All right, Jason, thank you very much for taking the time and coming on the show with me today. Thank you very much, CJ. Great to be here. So um, I'd like to start off with a little bit of kind of your background and origin story, because I'm interested in it, and I think some of the listeners will be too. So first off, I'd like to ask, how did you become a libertarian? And, you know, it's not a common thing for people who get 
PhDs in the social sciences at Ivy League universities to be libertarian. There are some, but um, not the majority. So I'm really interested. Were you already libertarian before you began your higher education or did you get there during it? And, and what was that, that journey like for you? Yeah, I was more or less a libertarian by the end of high school. Uh, I participated in an after-school program in high school called Ten Pillars of Economic Wisdom. I recently learned that actually a couple years before I did it, uh, Ted Cruz went through the same program. Uh, it was sort of a yeah, <laughs> it was a free market economics uh, program in Houston and. It actually did have a libertarian bent. Obviously, Ted Cruz didn't pick up on, on all aspects of that, but um, I did, although I didn't know the term, and uh, you know, read everything they sent me from uh, Mises to Rothbard to, <laughs> uh, to all sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> and um, by the time I got to college, I considered myself a libertarian, started a college libertarians group there. Uh, we even went through an anarcho-capitalist phase after reading The Machinery of Freedom. And, uh, and then in graduate school, uh, I uh, went into political science. I hadn't intended to do that. I had intended to go into economics at first. And there are some libertarian economists out there. That's probably the um, that libertarians usually go into. But political science seemed uh, a little more like uh, a frontier territory for thinking about how government and the individual relate and uh, and thinking about how we can try to redesign governing institutions to uh, ensure more liberty. So uh, when I went to graduate school, I, I kind of moderated a bit, and, and now I'm more, more of a minarchist, I guess I would say. Um, definitely have an appreciation for Robert Nozick's uh, philosophy, so I'm sort of in that scene of thinking, and started to study secession. Uh, so my interest very early on was in uh, making governments compete, and the idea of forming new governments through secession has always been sort of interesting to libertarians, um, but it's also an important political phenomenon in the world today, and I wanted to understand it better, um, what causes secession, what are the consequences of it, how should governments uh, treat secessionist movements. And so that's what I worked on in graduate school. And it was actually partly through that research that I uh, stumbled upon this idea of the Free State Project. How was your work received in your, your grad school education? Um, that's, I would assume, I mean, I'm, I'm coming out of history, but, you know, I, I know some political science professors and things like this. How was that received? Um, did, were, were people generally supportive of you? doing this work on secession? I mean, it seems like it's kind of a taboo subject amongst some in sort of establishment academia, or or did you luck out and find some professors who were pretty sympathetic or supportive or whatever? So I, I certainly did not have any uh, libertarian political science faculty at Yale, um, but they were all mostly left of center. Some were more centrist, and, and some were very interested in developing kind of what you might call rational choice models of politics, and they tended to be more open to uh, to work that's a little bit more unconventional. Uh, and frankly, a lot of my work was really just about trying to understand secessionist movements better. 
And so it's not really a, uh, a normative topic about how the world ought to look, but it's really more of a positive topic, you know. What, it, what is it that explains this important phenomenon? So from that perspective, there was certainly a lot of support among the faculty for my work. Um, when I started working on this in the early 2000s, an important topic, uh, and actually it's becoming so again, but um, you know, we had recently the, uh, the breakups of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, and understanding why that happened and whether it could happen again and what governments could do. Uh, to prevent violence from happening when you have a secessionist movement. Those are all clearly important questions that anyone of any ideological perspective would want to answer. Mm -hmm. And so you currently uh, teach at Dartmouth, is that right? Uh, Actually, I just left Dartmouth. I'm now at St. Anselm College, uh, which is also in New Hampshire, and I'm running um, the Center for Ethics in Business and Governance there. Oh, nice. So how have things been going on that front? Have you generally been kind of, for lack of a better term, sort of left alone to do your thing, or has has anybody been? Has there been any pushback? I know there's there's all kinds of contentious things happening in in some sectors of academia, but then in other places it's rather quiet. Yeah, well, I actually have faced some ideological discrimination in my career. Uh, there was one time I applied for what would have really been at the time uh, almost a perfect job uh, for myself and my family. And, and it was a tenured position and, and all of that. And I was the only candidate and the chair wanted me and the dean wanted me. And, but there were two self-described Marxists in the department who said, basically, over our dead bodies, will you hire this person? And so they ended up hiring nobody. And the uh, program that they wanted to hire me for went away. So, <laughs> uh, you know, that's the kind of lengths that will happen sometimes. And, um, and I won't say that uh, the road has been entirely smooth to my current position. Uh, definitely, there have been some people who um, have have opposed me simply because of my um, political background or because of the Free State Project. Uh, but there are others who have been very supportive. And you know, at Dartmouth, I was never a tenure track, so I was never really a threat. Because if you're a tenure track or you're tenured, you're voting on positions and you're helping determine the future of the department. So um, they actually found me a, kind of a curiosity, and uh, one of the faculty actually encouraged me to develop a course on libertarianism. Uh, so I did that, and I taught that uh, course a couple of times, and it was uh, actually my uh, uh, my favorite course. It was uh, the course that got the best evaluations from the students of any course I've ever taught. So, <laughs> so that ended up being a good suggestion. Um, and now that I'm at St. Anselm, my job is mostly research and administration, so I haven't I've been in the classroom yet, but um, it's been rewarding work, and there are definitely people who support what I'm doing there. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Getting back to your dissertation, looking at secessionist movements in history, could you talk a little bit about some of the specific cases that you looked at in that work and what sorts of lessons you learned that you know that you gleaned from the particular case studies you looked at? My work has been mostly on movements that have occurred since World War II, and so they're modern and contemporary movements. And what I found is that um, you have a big division between those cases where the government says, essentially, we're not going to send in the military to stop secession, right? So if you want independence, we're going to have to negotiate this somehow, and you're going to have to prove that a majority or supermajority of the population actually supports it. And so we've had cases of peaceful secession. For instance, we had the secession of Montenegro from the Union of Serbia and Montenegro back in 2005. We had the breakup of Czechoslovakia 
And we have cases like Britain, where the government has said, well, Scotland, you're uh, allowed to hold a referendum at least once every generation. And, uh, and if you get a majority of the vote, we will recognize your independence. Um, moreover, the European Union, of course, recognizes uh, the ability of member states to withdraw from the European Union. So you have those cases where secession is treated as um, an issue for the choice of, of the people in the seceding state, and you don't have violence. And then you have cases where um, secession is banned and uh, where the central government does threaten military force or criminal penalties against those who try to achieve independence. And Spain is an example of that, where the Spanish constitution defines the country as indivisible, and the central government has always said that they would use any available means to crush uh, any attempt at independence. And so in Catalonia, they sent in massive numbers of troops to, um, to prevent independence from occurring, uh, sort of military police, I, I guess I should say. And uh, and they arrested the leaders of the independence movement and and tried them and uh, they were convicted and sentenced to long terms in prison. Uh, so that's a case where you have great uncertainty and you haven't had a whole lot of violence yet. Um, it's been mostly mass protests, but you have seen there's recently some work published by several political scientists who've been surveying surveying public opinion in Catalonia and they found that. Um, pro-independence Catalans are becoming more accepting of violence as a result of this because they see that there's no peaceful resolution to this conflict when the central government won't negotiate. Uh, and of course, the results can be even more horrific in cases like Sudan um, or Burma, where you have had uh, secessionist civil wars that have raged for decades and killed hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. Uh, and, and clearly those are cases where, you know, dividing the country might have been a, a better option than trying to, to force it to stay together uh, at that kind of cost. So were there any sort of tactical or strategic notions that you gleaned from that as far as like, are there any particular approaches that secessionist movements could take to try to maybe maybe minimize the possibility of, of violent resistance to secession or? Um, were there were there particular factors at play that you could identify that led to some some secessionist mm -hmm. movements being met with violence and others being met with, you know, kind of more reasonable, like, OK, let's hold the plebiscite kind of thing. Or, or were there any identifiable any identifiable patterns there? Yes. Richer, more liberal countries, liberal in the broad sense of respecting individual rights, by and large, uh, those countries were more likely to take a tolerant approach to secession. Countries where the Constitution does not define the country as indivisible take a more tolerant approach. When there are more potential national minorities that might secede, central governments are less tolerant. So if there's only one group that might secede, then the central government might be willing to let them go. That they worry about some sort of internal domino effect where a bunch of other and ethnic groups or national minorities are going to say, well, we want our independence too. That's when they crack down on the first one. Um, there's also some evidence that uh, although secessionist movements are more likely to emerge in places that are rich in natural resources, those are also the sorts of movements that central governments tend to violently resist because they don't want to lose control over those resources. So some of those uh, findings um, could help a secessionist movement try to try to defang uh, opposition. Uh, some of them are just more structural factors that you can't really overcome. 
But I guess I would want to say that one advice to a secessionist movement that's trying to play nice uh, with the central government it's facing is to not cozy up to governments that are hostile to your government, even though there might be some temptation to do that. Uh, If you can make the case that you're going to be a constructive friend and partner uh, of the government that you're leaving, then you're more likely to to be allowed to go. And if you can um, clearly signal that you're going to maintain some kind of links with them, maybe trade links, even giving uh, the central government some sort of one-time payment in exchange for allowing the region to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of buying your way out of uh, whatever union it is. So how did you go from that work to eventually devising the Free State concept, the Free State Project, uh, which I guess now is like uh, close to two decades ago that you you put this together? How How did you come up with this idea? Right. Um, Yeah, it would have been 18 years ago. And uh, one of the parts of my research was looking at decentralization of power. So why do central governments sometimes give power to regional governments? It seems like something contradictory to the nature of government that you give power away. And what I found is that uh, secessionist movements actually encourage more decentralization of power. Uh, So central governments are giving more regional autonomy, self-government, Uh, as a kind of way of preventing independence. Um, But in particular, it's central governments that um, tolerate secession. So ones that do not define themselves as indivisible and are willing to treat this as a negotiable issue, those are the ones that respond to independence movements by compromising and offering autonomy. And so I thought, well, you know, this is interesting. Um, the, The U.S. has become more centralized over time, but other countries are becoming more decentralized. You know, what if uh, libertarians from around the country or even the world moved to a single state of the U.S. and pushed for more regional autonomy? Not necessarily independence. Um, so it's, the Free State Project is not a secessionist movement, but that idea inspired me to think that, um, you know, U.S. states could try to push for more autonomy. Um, be, libertarians could help the state become freer in state and local policies, but then also maybe try to move some of those federal policies back down to the state level. And that's how the Free State Project was born. So what are your thoughts, having having looked at you know different countries, some of which have been more comfortable with decentralization and even secession, and some of which have been less comfortable, sometimes even militant? in their responses to secessionism and even decentralization. What's your take overall on what do you think the the U.S. government, what, what their potential responses are to these sorts of impulses? I would compare the U.S. government to those countries that are most similar in other parts of the world. If you compare the U.S. to other Anglophone countries like Canada and the U.K., um, or to other countries that, whose constitutions do not define the country as indivisible, these governments tend to be more tolerant of secession. And of course, U.S. history from the 1860s suggests that the U.S. government was not at that time very tolerant of secession. Um, but of course, uh, any secessionist movement that emerged in the 21st century is occurring in an entirely different political context. Uh, obviously, issues like racial slavery would not be on the agenda. So I actually think that the U.S. government would probably take a more tolerant approach and would not prosecute you know, this kind of movement as treasonous. In fact, we have had 
independence parties in parts of the U.S. The Alaskan Independence Party even elected a governor back in the 1990s, um, who then promptly disclaimed any interest in independence. And there's been a long-running uh, independence party in Puerto Rico. Uh, and in fact, interestingly, presidents have repeatedly said that Puerto Rico enjoys the right to gain independence if it so chooses. So it's interesting that uh, a mere federal territory that's under the exclusive disposition of Congress, according to the Constitution, would enjoy somehow enjoy more rights than a state would, which is one of the very constituent units of the Federation. Um, so I, I think that position would be very, very difficult to hold up ultimately in a court of law and that states properly understood um, will, uh, you know, will, will, will be taken to have some kind of right to, to gain independence if they demonstrate a clear desire for it. So the, the tactic of the Free State Project is ultimately revolving around intentional migration, right? Attracting people who share common beliefs. I mean, maybe not identical beliefs. There's obviously many different flavors of libertarians, but, you know, broadly share similar big picture sort of ideas and, and attracting them to the same geographic location. So were there any particular historical examples of intentional migrations that you looked at that that sort of inspired this or that, that gave you some, um, some, some lessons that you glean from things that, you, that really kind of, you know, caused you to think down this line? When I initially proposed the Free State Project, I actually was not thinking of any historical migration movements. But once those of us who were interested in the idea got together and, uh, and started working on it, we definitely had some of those examples in mind, and some of them are familiar to us, like the Mormon migration to Utah or the Zionist migration to Israel that ultimately resulted in an independent state. But there were some other interesting movements uh, throughout history that are, are lesser known. So, for instance, the Georgists, who were followers of Henry George, the economist that advocated a single land tax, decided to all move to Delaware in the 1890s. And they never elected a governor or got even close, but they did form some communities that still exist uh, that are based on the idea of a, um, a 99-year lease to land rather than owning land. So it's kind of a single land tax idea as applied to kind of a deed restriction. Uh, so you can still visit some of these places, the Arden towns in Delaware. So there have been some examples of uh, migration that have worked, and there have been some examples of migration that have been partly coordinated, partly uncoordinated that have also worked, like um, the movement of back-to-the-land types in the 1960s and 1970s to Vermont. Uh, Vermont used to be a very Republican state, um, but people like Bernie Sanders moved there from New York, and, uh, and, um, and they really changed the political climate of that state and moved it strongly to the left. Uh, so we knew that something like this could actually make a big impact on a state's political scene. Mm -hmm. So I'm familiar with the Free State Project, and I'm sure a fair amount of my listeners are. But just for those who maybe aren't familiar with the Free State Project, can you give like the Cliff Notes version, the elevator pitch, you know, the kind of what the basic idea is? The Free State Project is recruiting people who believe in limited government and individual liberty uh, to move to New Hampshire and make a difference. So we have got more than 20,000 people 
signed up to uh, to move to the state. We've got over 2,500 people who have actually made the move, and they've gotten active in the political scene. Many of them have been elected to the state legislature. Some of them are forming media organizations. Some of them are doing homeschool co-ops. They're participating in market days. They're starting farms. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which uh, free staters are making a difference, creating alternatives to the state um, here in New Hampshire and building communities. So it's a very exciting uh, historic opportunity, really, to uh, participate in in changing society. Yeah, I've I've been up there a couple of times. I, I went to a pork fest a while back, um, and then I guess a little over a year ago, I went to one of the Free Coast events at Portsmouth, and you know it's definitely kind of cool. Um, there's only been a couple other places I've been where you where you go to these these uh, liberty events where you don't feel like the weirdo, right? You don't feel like the oddball um, where, where you're surrounded by people who at least somewhat think like you do. And when you hold a belief system that's, you know, at least right now, very out of the mainstream, it, there's definitely something to be said just for being around other people who don't automatically think you're crazy, right? Um, right. Even if you don't get involved in the political process, there's this community element that is, is really cool. That's right. And if you're a, a libertarian in another part of the country, you might be used to having your libertarian meet up um, every month and, you know, three to five people show up. Um, but here, <laughs> you know, every week there's something that will get 40 or 50 people to show up. So it's, it's definitely a, a big community that you won't see really anywhere else in the world in terms of the actual concentration of, of libertarians in one place. And so that you're able to find your niche. You know, there are all different types of libertarians because libertarianism is just a political philosophy. It's not a complete ethical code. And so there will be people who are religious, people who are not religious, people who are, you know, are into sort of alternative lifestyles, people who are more left-wing, people who are more right-wing. You know, all those different varieties are there. And so you can sort of find your crowd. Uh, and if you want to get active, the political scene here is extremely open. Uh, we have the largest per capita legislature in the world on a per capita basis, um, only about 3,000 people per representative. So it's very easy to get elected to the state house. Uh, your, your state representatives will listen to you. Uh, you might run into them in the grocery store. So it's a, um, it's a place where you can really make a difference as a single individual. Yeah, yeah. It, could you talk a little bit about why I know it wasn't the choice that like you made just, you know, yourself, um, but the factors that worked into the choice being made for New Hampshire to be the place for the Free State Project? We had a vote among the first 5,000 people who signed up for the Free State Project. And initially, all 50 states were on our list. And then we went out the ones that were too big. And the ones that were way too statist in their political climate. Um, and then we had a list of 10 states that we had a, a people vote on, and they were able to rank all 10 candidate states. And then we chose the state that is in the uh, in social choice jargon, that Condorcet winner. That's the state that defeats every other state by a majority. So imagine you had a series of one on one elections between each, you know, head to head between each state. The state that wins a majority there is the winner of the, of the election, and that was New Hampshire. And there were several reasons why New Hampshire won. First of all, the governor at the time 
signed up with the Free State Project and recruited us to move to the state. So that was the only governor that actually expressed support for the Free State Project. Um, but in addition, New Hampshire has, has many advantages that are pretty subtle. Um, compared to Western states, for instance, New Hampshire has a smaller land mass, and that means it's easier for people from all over the state to get together uh, to share ideas, um, you know, get involved in various ways. And, you know, you couldn't really do that in a place like Wyoming or Montana, at least not very often. I already mentioned how open the political scene is here. I haven't even mentioned town meeting. Uh, many towns have direct democratic government where uh, taxes and spending are decided by directly by the voters of the town. Uh, and so they pay attention to line items. They pay um, close attention to what uh, the town is buying and whether it's actually worth it. Uh, so there's a lot of fiscal responsibility. Uh, New Hampshire is also a very decentralized state. Uh, so it's one of the most decentralized states in the country, if not the most decentralized state. What that means is that the vast majority of taxes that are raised are raised at the local level. So the property tax burden is fairly high compared to other states, but there are, really aren't many other taxes. There's no general state income tax. There's no general state sales tax. And that property tax varies a lot from town to town. So you can choose a town with low property tax and few services or a town with high property tax and high services. And it's pretty easy to do so because there are many different town governments. Uh, counties do almost nothing in New Hampshire. So there's just a lot of choice of government um, and the government is close to the people. And so those are advantages of New Hampshire that were talked about some initially before the vote but have really become obvious since people started moving here. So over the course of the the existence of the Free State Project, how have things evolved on the ground there in New Hampshire? And have there been things that you didn't even anticipate uh, as far as, you know, things people are doing and um, the, just the, the way that the people who have, you know, move there, plus the people who were already there who were libertarian leaning, which there already obviously were some in New Hampshire. Um, how has that played out and, and have there been any surprises for you? Well, I will say that I think uh, we're seeing an influence on policy, which is at the end of the day what matters. So nowadays, New Hampshire is number one in the Economic Freedom of North America Index. Uh, I believe in the Cato Institute Index, it's number two in overall freedom. Uh, and very close to the number one state. Uh, and that's been a, a change. And we've seen, uh, in some ways, a political climate change where New Hampshire used to be a state that trended to the left. And some people still have this perception that, oh, New Hampshire used to be really conservative and Reaganite. Now it's moving to the left. Well, it was up until about 2004. And if you look at the data, New Hampshire has actually trended slightly to the right since 2004. Now, I'm not saying libertarians are necessarily closer to the right than to the left, but um, it is interesting that that uh, trend shifted uh, once the Free State Project started moving to New Hampshire. So I mentioned a lot of people have been elected to the legislature. Uh, they've passed legislation. They've written laws. They've joined with others in the legislature to get things done. I was a free stater who wrote the comprehensive civil asset forfeiture reform bill. So now New Hampshire is one of a handful of states where you actually uh, have to get a criminal conviction before you take someone's assets. In other states, you could be an innocent owner, um, but the government can still take your property. Then you have to go to court to prove your innocence. Uh, that's not the case in New Hampshire. Um, and that's thanks to free staters. Uh, we've also taken a, a, a major lead in constitutional carry in 
um, stopping the minimum wage and uh, cutting business taxes and repealing the hospital certificate of need law. I could go on and on. Marijuana decriminalization, medical marijuana legalization. <laughs> there have been a ton of policies that have passed enhancing freedom in New Hampshire over the last decade. And um, some of them are due in part to local allies, and some of them are due in part to free staters who've actually moved to the state. But that's the whole point. You know, we're not we're not doing this on our own. We're connecting with the resources that are already here and acting as that kind of support um, for the people who are the real experts who have the local knowledge uh, and who have the sort of credibility of having been here, um, you know, their their whole adult lives. Uh, and they're the ones that are often taking the lead on these things. Uh, am, am I correct? Are, are you involved in some way with the Freedom in the 50 States project? Yeah. So I am a co-author on that project uh, with William Ruger, um, who's at the Charles Koch Foundation. Okay. So, yeah, I'm in Florida, which I think does fairly well there. Yes. And the last version, Florida was number one in, in overall freedom. Really? Wow. Yeah. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't caught that. Um, wow. Okay. Interesting. Well, I feel pretty good about things now. Um, what, what are the, the realms where, where New Hampshire, where, you know, free staters and their, their local allies still have some work cut out for them? So I would say the one area where New Hampshire does worse than average, and it's a, and is a non-trivial area is land use regulation, zoning laws. And so, um, house prices tend to be fairly high in New Hampshire not like California or something, but um, but still fairly high for a lot of people who are looking to move to the state. And that's due to local zoning regulations that uh, make it costly to build new homes. And uh, so we are really starting to see some major efforts, not just from libertarians by any means, from people on the left, people on the right, to try to solve this issue. Um, we're the first state now, um, this just passed a couple of months ago, we're the first state to have a statewide housing appeals board so the um, the state is setting up a special body that will allow property owners to appeal the zoning decisions of local governments. Uh, and so it's a much cheaper option than having to go to court uh, and sue these governments. So um, we, we're trying to get a handle on that, but that's definitely, I think, the biggest area where New Hampshire has to work on. And it's probably the reason, frankly, why um, you know why New Hampshire is not uh, not number one in that last edition of the index. Okay, yeah, I, I know they're they're pretty good on a bunch of things. Good on on like you said, no state income tax, which you have in common here with Florida. Pretty good on on firearms, I know. Let's see what else. Um, what what's the New Hampshire situation currently regarding marijuana? So we have medical marijuana legalization and uh, recreational decriminalization of possession. Uh, but what we do not have yet is recreational legalization. And that's not surprising because New Hampshire does not have the ballot initiative. And so the vast majority of the states that have legalized recreational have done so through the ballot initiative. So the only states that have done it through the legislature are very liberal Democratic states, Illinois and Vermont has legalized for simply personal use. Uh, they have not legalized sale, just possession. Okay. So looking ahead, you've got the, what is it, 20,000 uh, signatures. You've got a few thousand who've already moved. What's, what's the goal 
going forward? What's the, I know that libertarians are allergic to this, but what's sort of like the, the master plan or at least the, the hopes <laughs> for going forward? Well, we're continuing to recruit new signers uh, all the time and get people to move to the state and people are moving all the time. <clears throat> Our Facebook groups are very active. So if you go on there, you can immediately connect with people in the state and ask your questions about what's going on and plan a move. Uh, there's a, a calendar of Liberty events around the state now, nhcalendar.org. You go there, um, it, it sends you to the Free State Project website, and you'll see what's going on in the state. And there are multiple things going on uh, almost every day uh, here. So, um, you know, that's really our focus right now uh, as an organization is trying to get more people to move to the state. Um, and more people are moving all the time. But uh, in addition to that, uh, we also want to improve connections with uh, people already in the state who are sympathetic to these ideas that really haven't been activated yet. And so we're exploring the possibilities of starting a new organization or maybe a new initiative within the organization uh, that would sort of highlight people who are living out their freedom in some way, people who are kind of leaders in their fields who are kind of embodying that live free or die ethos. So taking that live free part of our motto and saying, okay, well, how are people actually living free, whether not, not just be in, in politics, but in, uh, in society and education and culture and philanthropy and business. Um, you know, these are the, the people we want to highlight and kind of build those connections with people who are already leaders in our community. And setting aside, you know, the, the questions of politics and kind of libertarian community, What's what's your sort of pitch on just New Hampshire as a place? I mean, I I personally think it's beautiful. Um, I I think it's a really neat place. But what's what's your take on it just overall as a place to live? Because I know you've lived there for a while now. Yeah, I've been here six years. Um, but before that, I had lived in in Connecticut and in New York, and so everyone in the Northeast knows about New Hampshire and they know how awesome New Hampshire is. And when you tell them, uh, yeah, we want to move to New Hampshire, they say, oh, yeah, well, of course, doesn't everyone. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, it's a state in the Northeast where you can have a gun and you can, you know, you're not going to pay a lot in taxes. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of business regulation and people are actually moving to the state. Whereas uh, states like Massachusetts, yeah, you know, they're still... Um, getting some high tech and stuff, but on net, people are actually moving out of Massachusetts to other states. And so anyway, uh, you know, New Hampshire's got immense natural beauty. It's got the highest mountains in the Northeast. I love hiking myself. <clears throat> I love getting up in the Alpine zones where you're really experiencing an Arctic climate. Um, but all you have to do is take a day hike up a mountain and there you are, and you see these plants that are also found in Siberia and, and northern Canada and places like that. You know, there's, a, there's really a lot of culture um, in New Hampshire. It's, uh, you know, I, I kind of grew up in the South, and in the South, you tend to find the culture in the big cities and small towns as sort of backwaters. In New England, and especially New Hampshire, that's not the case. Uh, so you have people in small towns who are amazing artists and you know, retired professors, and, and there's a lot of culture going on, there are a lot of things going on, a lot of things for kids to do. It's sort of, uh, in a lot of ways, a lot of ways, a sort of classic American lifestyle where you have Fourth of July parades and you have the town green, and there's a um, there's outdoor ice skating in winter, and 
Um, it's just a very lovely place with a lot of that kind of social capital where people still have strong communities and there's still um, ways that, that people are connecting with each other on a day-to-day basis um, that they may not do in, in places that are more populous or um, you know, with, with, uh, with less of that kind of history and culture. Yeah, yeah. You know what it kind of made me think of as a person who's lived his whole life in, in various parts of the South and, and spent a fair amount of time. Um, it, it's like Appalachia minus some of the more negative aspects of Appalachia, by which I mean, uh, the, you know, the, the kind of less culturally tolerant stuff that you find in Southern Appalachia yep. and, and the kind of, you know, over the top nationalism and, and that sort of thing that, that it's like a, a more mellowed out version of Appalachia in a way when you're up in the mountains of New Hampshire. I think that's a, a great comparison. I mean, technically it is Appalachia, right. um, but it, but yeah, it's, I mean, uh, by w- one study uh, found that New Hampshire had the highest median household income of any political unit in the world, uh, which um, surprises me a bit. I know it's high. I know it's that high, <laughs> So it's a prosperous place. So it's it's very different from the rest of Appalachia in that respect. And yeah, there's just um, people are are friendly. People are, tend to be responsible and productive. There there has been an opioid crisis here as in other places. Um, it really isn't very visible. You know, you, you you don't see the effects of it. I'm sure people who are EMTs and so on do see it. Um, and it's starting to kind of fall back now. Um, and so that's been a big issue uh, that um, leaders in the community have been trying to address. Um, but overall, I would say, yeah, New Hampshire is a fantastic place to to raise a family, to get involved in your community in any way you want, to get to know people. Um, you know, it really has something special that I haven't seen anywhere else I've lived. Right. Well, very cool. And I'll be sure, of course, to link to the Free State Projects page in the show notes for this episode. and. I would encourage any listeners who aren't familiar with it, please go check it out. It's a very cool idea, and New Hampshire is a cool place. If I didn't have family and other things tying me to Florida for the time being, it would be on my short list of places I'd be interested in going. But, um, Jason, is there anything else that you'd like to plug or anything else that you'd like me to link to or anything like that? Sure. Our website uh, for the Free State Project is fsp.org. And you can sign up there and find out more about our events. We've got the Porcupine Freedom Festival in June. And coming up uh, in February is the New Hampshire Liberty Forum. And we've got the uh, the founder of the Babylon Bee is going to be there. So that'll that'll be fun. Cool. Yeah, that's that's one that I've not been to yet, the, the New Hampshire Liberty Forum. So one of these days I'll have to go check it out. Well, Jason, it's been really great talking with you. And... Um, I really appreciate it. And wow, what a, what a neat thing that you've done that's, you know, gathered this much steam. So it's been just, just great to talk to you about this. You too. Thanks so much for having me on, CJ. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, There are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can 
financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. 